Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Pogalent has teamed up with Philips TV to host an exclusive event at Abbey Road Studios. Philips is the official TV partner of the legendary studios, famous as the home of iconic artists from the Beatles and Pink Floyd to Oasis, Sam Smith, Frank Ocean and Brockhampton. And this unique event is your chance to experience the next generation of Philips TVs in the home of Cinema Sound. And to learn about the new state-of-the-art Philips OLED Plus 984 TV with its immersive Bowers & Wilkins sound system designed to create a movie experience like never before. To find out how to win your place at the event at the end of November, go to www.pocket-lint.com forward slash Philips OLED. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Lint Podcast. No sooner have we all finally got around to embracing 4K picture resolutions on our TV and the industry turns its gaze to the next big story in the resolution journey. But should you sit up and pay attention, when are you likely to want to get it? And really, what's the story so far? Pocket editor Chris Hall has been finding out and joins me to discuss more. Meanwhile, I've been chatting to up-and-coming band Bamley in their studio in London to find out how they create music and how, in some cases, the process involves AI and not even them at all. And Pocket gaming maestro Rick Henderson has been playing with Apple Arcade, with the initial 30-day free trial almost over for the first batch of users that have signed up on day one, is it worth the monthly subscription fee that they pay? And what are the best games to download? But let's go back to you, Chris. How soon are we all going to be watching 8K, or is it just beyond the realms of all of us at the moment in terms of price? Okay, so 8K, obviously, if you followed any of the story of TVs, you will know that everything works along in these incremental steps. We went through HD, we went through full HD, then we arrived at 4K. And I remember in about 2012, everybody was saying 4K is irrelevant, we don't need it, there's no content. And here we are, and everybody's been watching 4K for a couple of years because it's Mm. fairly easy to get to. Now, the association and everybody involved with 8K and earlier in the year, the 8K Association, which is the sort of overseeing body that's going to work across the ecosystem to make all this happen, was formed. And I sat down with one of their head executives this week who said that if you look at the way that these things are progressing, then we should be expecting to see 8K coming along within the next few years. And that's sort of around three to four years perhaps where there's going to be plentiful content that's the same sort of cycle that we saw moving from full hd to 4k and now we're going through the same process again and you have this sort of crossover point where there's suddenly a lot of content you you asked when are we going to be watching it the real answer to that is at the moment there really is very little native 8k content out there for you actually for you to actually watch but that doesn't mean I can't go and buy an 8K television because people like Samsung and others yes. have, have, are selling them. So is that something that as, as, as their listeners listening in should think, well, okay, if there's no content, should I really buy the TV? 
The the interesting thing about that is that 8K is an inevitability. You have to accept that you're going to go out and you're going to buy a TV and it will have 8K on it. Whether or not there's 8K content or not is kind of a, is a separate issue. The thing to understand is that if you go out and buy a flagship TV over the next few years, it's very likely that you're going to get an 8K panel on it. There are some people who are pursuing two streams at the moment where they're still producing high-end 4K TVs, but we've seen this introduction and Samsung has kind of taken the lead here. They have a range of TVs that go all the way from 55 up to, I think, 98 inches. They certainly have them at 55, 65, 75 82 inch sizes so they have a full range and then i remember they've even got that i remember talking to the samsung one of the samsung guys a couple of weeks ago on the podcast and they've got the wall as well which is literally a wall and i know that's that's there's an 8k version of that so you know you really go to the you know start building houses out these i mean the, the 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 question of whether you should rush out and buy it depends on how much you want to have the latest and the greatest television how much money you have to spend and and uh, how how regularly you want to replace your TVs. Sensible consumer buying advice at the moment would say, maybe don't go out and buy one of these things yet. Maybe wait until the content is there because you're not really going to be getting the full capacity of that TV at this very moment. But the other side of the argument is that we're never going to reach that point if people aren't going out and buying these TVs. And that was one mm. of the points that Samsung has made this week, which is that if they're not putting in the work to refine the technologies to make these affordable for for customers then the the business never moves forward and it kind of stagnates a little bit and obviously the thing that really is driving 8k the thing that's more important than anything else is that at the moment people want to buy bigger TVs and that's going up and up and up we used to have i remember we had a 32 inch TV then a 40 inch TV now i've got a 49 inch TV you have a TV that is 55 inches 55 inches and it's 55 inches that is the average at the moment i think in the UK and the industry is projecting the biggest growth in the 65 inch plus area so there you can see that once you get up to these much larger sizes and people now want big TVs rather than, you know, that's no longer a vulgar thing having a massive TV. Now it's what you really, really want in your front room. And that really drives the demand for higher resolutions like 8K. So it's inevitability. It is going to happen. It is going to come down the line. And as we move further along the path towards that happening, panel manufacturing is going to increase. The prices are going to come down and, you know, it's it's an inevitability. You can't resist it. Now, the final question I have is: if you go out, say if we've we've convinced someone to go out yep. and buy an AQ TV, they think, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the plunge. Can you benefit from? I know a lot of the uh, when the 4Ks first came out, it was it was all about upscaling, upgrading, taking 4K content. Could, is it easy just do these TVs just say, well, you know, we'll we'll fudge it to a point. It's not pure native 8K, but we can make it look like 8K. Well, this is where the magic really happens. If you're going to buy into the magic, because everything at the moment is about upscaling and it's about using artificial up to, uh, artificial intelligence to do the upscaling. So it's not just looking at an image and thinking it would probably be better if it was brighter or sharper or will make the skies bluer by adding a filter to the whole thing. That's, that's, that doesn't happen anymore. That, that's in the, back in the dark ages. Now it will look at the image and think about 
what's going on in this pixel compared to this pixel. And this is probably a blurry line because the resolution is so low. How do I sharpen up this area? That looks like it might be a cup. How can I make that look more like a cup? All of this is happening at amazing pace in the TV as it's going through these references and running these algorithms, these computational algorithms to say, how can we make this picture look better? And that's really where the magic is at the moment, because obviously you're going to be feeding in content from 720p extenders up to 4K that you're streaming off Netflix and you're throwing it onto a, a huge 75 inch 8K panel. It's all going to be upscaled. And the real challenge at the moment or the real competition is going to be in who manages to upscale it the better but the good thing is there's also a range of tvs out there and it's probably worth mentioning some of the prices if you're interested always always interested in a supermarket sweep with you chris okay so everybody talks about oled a lot at the moment and oled and 8k added together equals expensive there aren't a huge number of tvs out there and if you go to um LG, they have a flagship OLED, OLED TV, which is 88 inches, I believe. And that will cost you a cool $30,000 or £30,000. Okay. So that's the expensive point. Okay. If you go to Sony, they are offering a flagship LED 85-inch um, 8K TV, the ZG9. And that costs £14,000 or... $13,000 again. Wow. Okay. Yep. Okay. So let's come down to the realistic area. There's the Samsung Q900 range. It's called the Q950 in the UK because Samsung labels things a bit yep. differently. This actually launched in uh, 2018. And this was the, this is the TV that really kicked off 8K. They've updated it for this year. Um, and you can get a 75 inch model for about £6,000 or $5,000. Remember that they do come in two sizes smaller than that. So this is where you can get 8K. Starting to be, it's starting to become affordable. Yeah, you can get 8K there for under £4,000, under £4,000. Under $4, um, so that's where the flagship people may say, oh, this is a four, this is a 65 inch TV that I can probably afford to buy. And bear in mind that these are now coming up towards Black Friday sales and things like that. So there may be some deals. You may be able to get one of these things for about £3,000. Still to come, Rick gives us his opinion on Apple Arcade. What they were basically saying is that they design games that fit the, a phone screen perfectly and then all of a sudden had to think about how it would work on a TV as well. Up and coming foursome Bambly are a relatively new group on the music scene. Backed by the Apple Music owned AR label Platoon, they're already making waves with their pop undertones, which are seeped in influences taken from disco, hip hop, and soul. Using elements of DJing in their vibrant live set and production, the band open a world of sample heavy beats over luscious pads and percussion loops. But what's perhaps different from your average experience is some of those loops and beats are created by AI, with the band sculpting the end experience after the fact. I caught up with three of the four at their studio in London to find out more, and I started by asking them to not only introduce themselves, but how they use tech to create the music they make. I'll start. I'm Louis. Uh, I'm a singer, and I play keyboard, and more actually, now I'm going to just be dancing, because the computer's going to do all the keyboards, and I'm really good at it. <laughs> I'm Charlie, I'm the guitar player, and producer, I would say. Yeah. Mm. I'm Tim... I'm a producer as well, and I do a bit of DJing and sound experimentation. And you play bass too. 
Sometimes the pivot. And he's probably the most intimately involved with tech. Yeah, yeah. probably. So let's start by a nice, real, general question. How how do you use tech in your music? Because I know you kind of use traditional instruments, but then also you don't. Yeah. Tech I mean, uses us. Yeah. yeah from start to finish, really. Yeah. yeah. We use Logic, that the Apple recording software, which is like the home and the sort of centre of everything we do. It's our canvas. It's where we bang our heads against our technological walls. It's sort of everything. And, yeah, no, we've, we've become pretty well versed in it. But, you know, you're constantly learning. You can never fully learn these softwares. And they're constantly changing. And the way that we interface with them is so influenced by their layout. It's, it's a really interesting thing when you look at it. But we just see it second nature now. Which, yeah. And so, from a from an instrument perspective, you obviously you, you use traditional mu- traditional music, so you, drums, guitar, mm-hmm. keyboards. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you introduce into it to give you? Do you feel that gives you an edge over yeah. the traditional yeah. band, so to speak? Well, that like once it's in the realm of Logic, then there are like, possibilities of what you can do to sculpt or reinterpret or change or manipulate that sound. Kind of become pretty endless yeah. like as soon as you've imported it into that program suddenly the possibility is scarily endless yeah. yeah so even if you gave two producers the same source material like the same keyboard or the same drums fed in logic you could turn out completely different results yeah. and does that do you find that you sh- that can cause problems with focusing on what you want to achieve because there's so many possibilities definitely yeah definitely. yeah, it has, yeah. It's no secret that limitations like help yeah. in a lot of creative situations. A four track, you can get a better song. Yeah, debatably a better like composition because you're just focusing on the guitar and the vocals rather than two hundred and fifty tracks of soundscapes and yeah. synth noises and bass sounds, and they all just make a mess. Yeah, like when we're writing a song, we do normally try and stick to a keyboard or a piano or whatever. Although, and we really try. But a lot of the times, we'll be just messing around on Logic. And for example, our next release is called Katata. Um, that came about by just Timmy holding down this accord on an arpeggiator, which is like a, was a synth module, but it's a software one. And it just creates these crazy notes and rhythms, and it just picks out little things. And Tim just like got this one bar, and just like, this is it. And then just that one bar from this thing which the computer and Tim together made, like that was the start of the song, and then we sort of worked the lyrics and the melody around that. Mm. So yes, sometimes it really does use you, which is cool. Mm. And so you can find yourself that the software takes, the software starts creating the music, yeah, definitely. rather than and you going, oh okay, that's interesting, rather than and you just pick your moment. Yeah, you're like creating, creating, yeah. yeah. Was it generative music? <coughs> yeah. 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 So you can create systems that create music for you, mm. and Brian did that. that. Yeah, I was going to say, what was it, Reactor? Is that it? Yeah, I did. Uh, I used Max for Live, which is a, it's a very confusing world that I don't know much about, but I made this one patch in it. Um, but people use it to create kind of audio devices that can do anything. Like, you can just create your own kind of patch. Can museum in soundscape for five hours. But, it's never the same. You're a little Frankenstein. But we did some generative music work where, where you create a set of rules and systems that the computer has to abide by, and then you kind of just press start and let the computer generate its own music yeah. and every time you press play it'll, there'll be a different result all based on kind of random random number generation mm. 
but yeah, so that music, I had nothing really involved in making music <laughs> other than setting the rules and programming. Mm. Was that. it good? Yes, I right. sounds a bit weird. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. It's out there. It's yeah. Left field. But then we can extract some of those things and then put it into pop music or yeah. whatever. It mm. comes kind of full circle. Like sometimes it starts with that or it ends with that. Like just recontextualize things. No rules. <laughs> And so, what you've, we've talked about, sort of perhaps software influences you, mm. and what the computers are making. What what kind of influences do you take from a wider field? For someone that hasn't listened to to the music, what would you say? Where's where's the background? You mean the hardware? No, I mean the sort of just that sense of of what influences you from like other music. What mm. what? How would you describe your music? Oh, yeah. A mishmash of everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that has to do with the technology as well, because we we can do whatever we want and sample whatever we want and take influences from anything and store it on that computer and make endless amounts of music. Yeah. So I mean, being like a musician and when we were starting to make music, it was kind of exactly the same time as like the streaming age sort of coming to fruition. Like that's definitely had a huge amount of influence over us as music makers because we of course have the music that we love and we're teenagers and like that's kind of like our home ground but like we listen to endless radio mixes and literally anything um, and you kind of when we're making music we kind of have to keep it within the realm of writing an accessible song which people are going to understand which is true to us mm. but like take anything from all kinds of types of music be it like African 80s synths which sound to one person really crappy they sound wicked to us um, you, you know we go to like toy shops and buy little crappy keyboards for like yeah. five quid and they're just like the best thing ever yeah. Um, so yeah I love recording like just the objects that are around us like most of the time for percussion and like just sort of like a, a sound mixer or an engineer in that sense yeah, of like Foley kind of bores yeah. Foley at times where like oh, I don't have a snare drum but I've got a couple of woks and like a pillow or something yeah. you know, like Pitts is yeah. a specialist on that. You'll see him next to him like, just like holding like yeah. a, a champagne glass. We have fun with the process and the music comes out quite <coughs> like a pleasantly spirited, happy way. It's not that we aim to make that. Sometimes we make dark stuff, but we're all yeah. quite happy. Yeah, we tend it's to keep it kind of light. So. Yeah. And so do you think growing up with the streaming, with you know effectively millions of songs at your disposal, has, has kind of... Has, influenced you in that sort of dynamic of, of wanting yeah. to play with everything sure. mm. having 10,000 tracks on iTunes back when I used iTunes meant I could listen to any era at any point in an instant yeah. I don't think people had that opportunity 40 years ago so yeah. you'd have 15 records or whatever yeah. or the radio yeah just, I mean just, just, just a collection of the radio under your pillow and collection of, of cassettes they're in the <laughs> charts so like yeah that's why the influence is very diverse now and mm. we've taken a lot on there's a lot yeah. to listen to and I don't I don't <laughs> want to say you get crippled by choice but like some, I mean yeah. the, the thing with streaming that I certainly felt when there was like a sort of four year period in my musical life where it was just a mess because I'd find a song and I'd add it to my library and now I'm like militantly strict with my playlisting I've got like a whole system and I feel like it's very easy to get swallowed up by Spotify and yeah, you lose the I sense of that. yourself and you're just listening to what it's suggesting you. And I really hate that about Spotify particularly, uh, Apple Music less so. And so like getting into good listening habits by forming playlists and stuff has been another part of, I suppose, 
playing music listener. It's mm. like it's actually not as easy as it used mm. to be. I think yeah. Some people get like you, you can find yourself getting so wrapped up with the collecting side of listening to music that yeah. you kind of forget that you're actually just like listening, listening to music. Yeah. Like I've found that song, I put it in my playlist, my song. Yeah. yeah. But you don't actually really kind of like sit there and like I don't know connect with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so as a band, how do you how do you tackle that approach that we now you know, you talk to people and they're like, I don't, I don't, know, what I'm, I don't know what to listen to. You know, I, just, I find it hard to find music. How do you, as a, as a band on these streaming services, having grown up with these streaming services, how do you, how do you get through the thousands of, tra- of songs to become the, the band that people listen to? Well, we could talk to each other about a piece of music. We find that every day. We kind of don't. We just listen to lots of radio, like DJ mixes and radio mixes a lot of the time. And like once in a while, you'll just find, oh, I'm really like, oh my God. That this person's going to hear this, and like we kind of share those like all the time. Because we collaborate, yeah. We all bring different influences together, yeah. Then the songs are a product of that. People want to listen to anything. If you ask someone what they listen to today, they're like everything. Yeah, I love it, all of it, everything. So which is great. Like we can do that as we want. Apart from pop music, everyone's like, ooh. But as a as a band promoting yourself to to listeners, yeah. How do you do you worry that? The algorithms and, and, and things of Spotify and Apple Music and, and, and those just services just yeah. will won't won't yeah. surface your music. How yeah. do you how do you go about getting your music out there to listeners for them to say I want to put it on my playlist or yeah. what have you? Is that is that do you think that's yeah. harder today? No, mm, I don't know. I mean, I think the th- we're mindful of that for sure. Mm. But I think that's a really good thing to be mindful of because it's easy to get lost in your influences. And I think it's. I don't want to, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but like, I think it's maybe quite easy slash, not lazy, I don't want to use that word, to just make music that you want to hear. Like, I think it's a really great challenge to take the music that you love and put it in a place and put it through a filter where it's like, okay, this isn't just for me or mm-hmm. like for my little corner of where I see myself in culture. It's like, this is for a larger number of people and streaming's so good for that. Like, you, Spotify aren't actually really picky about what they're going to pick. I mean, everyone's, uh, what's it called, Discover Weekly and the release rate and stuff. Everyone's, they have like a real mixture of music in there. Um, And it's a great thing for musicians because it means they don't have to lean towards, oh, we have to sell out or we always have to have big choruses, we always have to have these sort of song structures. You don't have to do that anymore. You just don't. You don't have to do that, but I feel like now you just need to have the numbers that prove that your song kind of works yeah. to Spotify. Like, you need to have a ratio between the amount of listeners and the amount of people that have saved your track. And if that ratio is good, like, your music slowly starts climbing the ladder. And if that ratio is not working, then... then, then and so do you, yeah. do you worry that that could change the music that you create? We talked about the software changing the music you create because mm-hmm. it comes up with ideas that you might not have thought about. Are you worried that, uh, with that structure that you think, right, well, we want this song. I mean, I'll, I'm sure, that, sure there must be bands out there. That, I want this song to do well in Spotify. The data suggests that we've got to have a chorus here. We've got to yeah, have yeah, a, yeah. a guitar solo here. We've got to, you know, do this there and stuff. Do you, do you worry that that might taint and change the way that you make music? you just got to be realistic with yourself about that piece of music. Like, it's kind of obvious. Like, for example, we're releasing uh, EP quite soon. And we don't really want it to be like big chorusy, kind of like like hard hitting, in inverted commas, a streaming like EP mixtape song. We don't really want to be that. We just want to show people what kind of music we make. But like some of the people we're releasing it with are like, oh, you've got a couple of songs that you're not releasing, which could be on the TV because they know they're going to stream better. 
Uh, and it's quite obvious, I think, after releasing a couple of tracks, which ones are going to stream better and which aren't. So we don't tend to worry about the ones that we kind of know might not stream that well because we know that the fans or like the heads, as we call them, will probably like those the most, right? Mm. Uh, and like our, our mates are in a band called Juno Dream, and like they've got songs that are chorusy and like more sort of poppy. But that most streamed song is like they were so shocked about it when they seen it's got like two yeah, minutes. Instrumental, like two minute. Kind it's of beautiful. Album. It's really beautiful. Spotify loved it. Yeah. So you never know. But yeah, it really kind of surprised you, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. There are all these formulas and rules that like I don't know, like you don't want the intro more than five <coughs> seconds. Cause and so, skip, sort of thing. do you do you find that with your own music that there's some some you know you must obviously it's that classic thing you ask which one's your favourite you'll probably say they're all my favourite you yeah. know because they're like my children or whatever but it's that do you find that there are some that have resonated more with certain audiences maybe through Spotify or maybe through Apple Music or Tidal if you're on there or do you know is it, do you find that simple yeah. it doesn't really matter yeah. to me <laughs> see, see the French love Hey Raoul we've got a song called Hey Raoul which yeah. got on a couple of playlists in France and now we feel like half of our fans are French which is great um, but yeah I mean, it's, we've we've only released four, five, four tracks. Uh, so I suppose it's kind of hard for us to give proper answers to that. But yeah, it's funny seeing it so far. And in terms of quality, you talk to certain music fans, and they're like, "It's all about vinyl. It's got to have that sort of, yeah, yeah. you know, that edge to to it, or something." There's a, a cassette reemergence coming coming back, and people enjoying the sort of, you know, the metal tapes they used to have in the eighties and nineties. Obviously, you're producing majority of your work. It sounds by using computers, and mm-hmm. and therefore you can create it at a sort of a higher quality level. Do you think that people should be listening to it sort of via the you know the Amazon Music HD services or the titles? You know, should it, is it is that an issue or is it just about appreciating music? Just enjoy. It. I think we've passed the barrier where the quality can hinder on your on the enjoyment you you derive listening to the song. You know, what I mean, like once you're part like. Like after 1965, that recording was good enough, and they made it way better. But it didn't make the music any better, in my eyes. Like I, don't know, I think we've hit that threshold where you can you can hear really well, you can enjoy the song, and better. It's just like mm. I don't yeah. know. It can I don't sound know how much it contributes to the fire art. speaker, you know? Like, yeah. yeah, literally. We were finding that iPhone microphones are really really good to use yeah. to like record our vocals. And and, and we wouldn't get arsy about how people listen to our music because no. as much as we do take a lot of care and time into how we make our music, how we record it, like we're recording it in here and like in our bedrooms and stuff. And when hopefully down the line we're in studios and we're using you know two thousand pound microphones, then maybe it'll be like, oh, you should really should listen to this on vinyl, like maybe. I think the vinyl thing is like that's as much the process of playing and connecting with the piece of yeah. music, holding the art, yeah, and I love that sound of vinyl, I think it's amazing, I think that's mm. why the resurgence has come, kind of the opposite of what we were saying about streaming, you find it hard to connect, and you're just collecting all this stuff, and you just swamp down, vinyl's the antithesis of yeah, that, exactly. isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah, which is great. Cool, and so I suppose the final question I have is, is what's next? For us? More music? Yeah, more yeah. music, more music after Christmas, Yeah. Um, show on the 25th, the Jago Dalston. Yeah. We're throwing really parties about. every month, uh, yep. which everyone should come down to. They're a lot of fun, like, uh, sort of loaded DJs, uh, sort of ranging and staging their career. We've got Don Leak coming down, who's amazing. We'll be playing live at all of them. And yeah, hopefully that's going to grow into a messy, honey thing. 
Apple Arcade is Apple's new gaming service that for one fixed price allows you to download a number of exclusive games to play whenever you want. Rather than simply being an ad-free experience of games already in the Apple Store, Apple has worked closely with games developers to offer games that you perhaps wouldn't have previously thought about playing. Immersive, luscious, and at times very different, this isn't Fortnite or Clash of Clans. But can something more artsy or off the beaten track be compelling enough for you to want to pay and then play? Rick has been delving deeper to find out. So, Rick, you're here with me now. Is it any good? Yeah, it's actually very, very good indeed. And that's not just coming from me. That's anecdotally as well. I've been talking to quite a few people of both sides of the argument, both gamers and normal people who probably wouldn't normally pick up games. Not um, normal and people. They, they, yeah, those, those normal people. Um, and they love it. Uh, all of them. Um, the main reason being is because it's all for one set monthly fee of £4.99 or $4.99 in the US, you actually get so many games that you can pick up, play, choose to play. Some are in depth, some are very light and casual, that there will be something for everyone. There's, I think Apple are planning to eventually have a library of over 100 games, but there's definitely more than about 70 on the platform already. Yeah, there seems to be a lot, isn't there? I mean, one of the questions is, you know, what I suppose, what are your favourite games so far? What should people be they're thinking about this? What should they be picking up? Well, that's the beauty is that there's, there literally is something for everyone. There are arcade games like Sega, um, like Sonic Team Racing. Um, but the games that have actually caught my eye are funny enough, are more mobile centric because you know, things that wouldn't normally work on, say, a console. Um, Mini Motorways is a very good example of that. That's a, a fantastic puzzle game where you have to keep adding more and more motorways and roads. It's from the, um, the person who made uh, Mini Metro before, which again is and in funny enough it's made me go back to mini metro and appreciate that game all over again it's a beautiful game um another one is grindstone it's another puzzle game and it's kind of like a match game but you have to carve your way through different enemies that are presented in a grid it's hard to explain but it's really addictive and beautiful again um and what is quite nice about that is normally you associate puzzle games with advertising in-app purchasing and sort of like barriers where you can't really progress much further unless you pay money whereas this obviously is completely and utterly unlocked so it doesn't feel like you're you're forced into anything um, and i think that's where apple arcade really works at its best is that all of these games you're not asked to pay for extra levels you're not asked to pay for any more your one subscription pay fee covers the whole thing so there's no obligation really to play a game to its conclusion if you don't like it but at the same time there's no barrier to downloading it in the first place and I also think that one of the, you know one of the nicest things is there's no adverts. It's not even the adverts are sensible. It's just there are no in the games I've been playing on it on the platform. There's there's no games within the Apple Arcade experience. Uh, sorry, no no adverts in the Apple Arcade experience. Exactly. That's uh, that is actually a massive barrier to um to current in my uh, in my opinion current games on the platform on on sort of like app stores Android or Apple um, is that you know, you're always sort of like sporadically told to watch a video just so that you can progress in the game. And while that is a better 
system perhaps than loot boxes is still not perfect whereas with apple arcade you don't get that at all um i also like the fact that it has a pick up and play method where it doesn't matter what device you're using you can actually play it on anything like you can play across mac apple tv iphone and ipad so if you're on the tube and you're right in the middle of a big session of grindstone for example um and you get back and you suddenly fancy playing a bit on the tv you can actually just carry on there mm. one barrier to that is uh, um, i was chatting to the development team at us too who did the wonderful monument valley what they were basically saying is that they design games that fit the, a phone screen perfectly and mm. then all of a sudden had to think about how it would work on a tv as well um, so they redesigned the game so that it works one uh, totally different, almost totally differently on a phone and then on a TV. For example, if you put it on your TV or your Mac, it's in horizontal mode, which it isn't on a phone. Now, you could argue that that's one of the negatives. Are there any other negatives that you found so far with the time that you've been playing? I'm unimpressed slightly by um, some of – to be honest, there are very few negatives. But the one negative that I have found out so far is that there are few games I would say are good for children. When I first um, heard about Apple Arcade, I always expected it to be a sort of like – and certainly the fact that it has a family-sharing subscription mm. base, I expected there to be a lot more – games that my eight-year-old daughter for example could play and i don't think there are at the moment but then apple has said that we are only in a launch window and it's the largest ever number of games launched with a brand new platform yeah i suppose because I, I suppose the other problem with that is that you know you, it's more it is a very family friendly play because it doesn't have ads it's there's no chances for in-app purchases so you know parenting with both parents you know that's kind of great for me I think on that said as well, the other thing to add to that, which I found quite frustrating, is that it's iOS 13 only. And yes. that means that anything, uh, it's I think you have to have a 6S or above to be able to play Apple Arcade from a phone perspective, which kind of wipes out some of the younger children who have got 6s or the 5s or 5s's or whatever. They can't get it either. So there is a... You know, there. I think that's. It's going to probably take a year or two before that trickles down, and before the the eleven year olds of this world start getting iPhone sevens and, and above. Yeah, I do think that is the case. I mean, this is only a launch, though, to begin with, um, mm. and uh, it would be nice to see more family oriented games. It'd be nice. Uh, I, there are some on the horizon. I can't mention them because I have seen them, but I'm not allowed to say as yet. Oh, are more family based party games coming? that genuinely open it up a lot more. And actually, suddenly, you can have one person on an iPhone on a couch, one person on an iPad on the other couch, and one person playing on Apple TV. And that really, that opens it up to be a much bigger, wider thing than casual mobile games. Well, I suppose um, it kind of, it takes that sense of if you've all got iPhones or if you've got, you know, a couple of iPads or whatever in the house, and let's face it, through historical upgrades and all the other stuff, it's probably quite a lot of people, is suddenly you're not all having to, Okay, you could all be in the same in the lounge or whatever, but you're not having to share a quarter of a screen as you do on an Xbox or a PlayStation. No, exactly. Um, that's that's a really clever way of utilizing certainly the family sharing plan, which basically you get six six people can use it at the same time for the one four pound ninety nine a month fee, which is excellent. That's a really good idea. Um, I also particularly like, and this is something that I've done as well, is um, 
because they now have um, com- uh, compatibility with the DualShock 4 and the Xbox One controllers, you can actually link them to your device or link them to an Apple TV or a Mac and play using those. And that actually opens it up to possible down the line, even more console centric games. Mm, definitely, definitely. So uh, the, the £4.99, $4.99 question, you know, for some people who started this at the beginning, or because you got, I think you get 30 days free, don't you, at the moment. Do you think you should uh, continue paying? Will you continue paying? Yes, absolutely. It's very much worth it. The amount of titles that are available um, is just extraordinary. And the fact that you don't have to sit there plowing through adverts for half, half the day just to get to the next level is just a groundbreaking amazing thought um it's also your money also will go into development of even better games in the future um and there's always going to be something to play so i can't see that there's any real faults in that that's it for this week if you've enjoyed the show can you please give us a five star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on it really will help raise our profile and let others know you liked it too until next friday pip pip Pogolent has teamed up with Philips TV to host an exclusive event at Abbey Road Studios. Philips is the official TV partner of the legendary studios, famous as the home of iconic artists from the Beatles and Pink Floyd to Oasis, Sam Smith, Frank Ocean and Brockhampton. And this unique event is your chance to experience the next generation of Philips TVs in the home of Cinema Sound. And to learn about the new state-of-the-art Philips OLED Plus 984 TV with its immersive Bowers and Wilkins sound system designed to create a movie experience like never before. To find out how to win your place at the event at the end of November, go to www.pocket-lint.com forward slash Philips OLED. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 